Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening today to my first attempt to f- to make peace with the gigantic amount of research that I've been doing for the past six months to write a book called Cubit Tooth. It's one word. I feel like I always have to mention that for some reason, because I think the word, I feel like the, to- the title, Cubit Tooth, Cuba Tooth, like has two words, that's that's a bad title, but mine is fine. Obviously, it takes place in the 19, mostly in the 1920s. I is the most ambitious thing I ever tackled, and um, I have read over 30 books, and I don't know how many JSTOR articles in the past six months, trying to flesh this thing out. And I finished the first draft of the book in October, but there was still lots of research to be done before I dive into the second draft, which I'm going to do in January, and some of the heavy lifting of the second draft is I have the ending outlined, but I haven't written the ending. Like, basically, probably the last 30 or 40 pages, I needed to do a lot of research, a lot more research, before I could write that conclusion. Once it was done, it really did feel like a weight off my mind. And I devoted my creative time to just reading, doing that required research, and uh, I am almost done with it. I am almost finished reading all of the material that I laid out for myself to read. But in that time, I also wrote, this sounds so fucking ridiculous, but I, I wrote another short novel, because part of the research I was doing for this gigantic book is uh, reading a lot of the crime fiction from the 1920s and 30s, and that stuff is the pulpy, noirish, you know, staccato prose rhythm, and if you mire yourself in that kind of material, and you see how really great storytellers know to make their work skinny, like how to pare it down to the bare essentials. And if you're subscribed to the Thousand Movie Project Patreon page, you will get a copy when it's finished, which is hopefully going to be in the next uh, six or eight weeks. It feels weird to realize that I'm nearing the end, that I don't have a stack of reading material in front of me that needs to be gotten through. And in order to sort of ground myself out of that unreality, I am going to riff on some of the major topics that inform this book, and I'm just, I'm not going to try to do a fancy presentation of the information, I'm just going to walk myself, I'm going to walk us through it together. One of the major influencing things in Cuba Tooth is the life of Chicago bootlegger Al Capone. The book does not feature Al Capone himself, but it does touch on prohibition, bootlegging, organized crime, the jazz scene in which Al Capone was also a major player, not of an instrument, not kind of an, he was a major player of the system, I guess, when it comes, that was his instrument on the jazz scene. And you know what, why not start there? The way that Al Capone was such a major player in the jazz scene is that it was fucking Jim Crow America, and black musicians, no matter how talented, they could only perform in certain clubs. And also, part of the reason why down here in Miami, we have a place uh, called Overtown, which was once upon a time called the Harlem of the South, is because even those establishments that would allow black performers to come and do a show, if it was any kind of lodging, if it was a hotel, they would not let the black performers actually stay there as guests. Black musicians would come down to Miami, they would perform on some hotel, at some hotel in South Beach, 
And once they had finished their set, the proprietor would say, thank you very much, here's your money, get the fuck out. And then they would have to, like, find some place to stay, which is not easy to do at, like, 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning, whenever these shows let out. And so, black musicians would go to Overtown, which was a black part of town, and it was once a very prosperous part of town until, I think it's the I, I think it's I-95, the overpass that sort of was built right through it and cut down a bunch of buildings and basically impoverished the community. But during that period, when black musicians could not really perform in the, the, like the real higher echelon clubs, instead of going to those bars, they would go to speakeasies, which often were, you know, like invisible clubs, but they were actually pretty visible. And the reason they were pretty visible, the reason they didn't really get raided as often as like 1920s gangster movies would have you believe, is because although alcohol was readily available all throughout Prohibition, even the legitimate stuff, it was insanely fucking expensive. Like the price, the price of a cocktail or of a beer at a speakeasy was literally five times what it would have been at a bar, you know, in 1918. So if like a pint of an IPA here in in 2022 is $7 usually at a bar, it would be 7, 14, 21, 28, 30. Imagine paying $35 per pint. So the reason speakeasies didn't really get raided that often is because they were full of rich people. And when you sort of see these movies that romanticize the 1920s and everyone was so fashionable and stylish and all this champagne popping at parties, like, those were rich people. And many of those clubs, especially in major cities, were owned by figures in organized crime. So to do some math, to break it down, Al Capone had several breweries in Chicago alone. And a robustly outfitted brewery could generate about 100 barrels a day. And it would cost him $4 to produce a single barrel. His people would go around selling kegs to speakeasies, and speakeasies would generally buy about six kegs a week. And they would buy those kegs at $55 a piece. The keg that he had made for $4, he then sold that week for 55 And again, he was selling hundreds of them. I forget how exactly the math broke down. Obviously, I forgot that. When you account for inflation, he was earning about two billion, in 2022 dollars, he was earning $2 billion a year. But consider, if each of his breweries is earning about $3,000 a day. Well, the average police officer in Chicago was earning $3,000 a year. And you might be familiar with um, Brian De Palma's movie, The Untouchables, with Dennis Quaid and Sean Connery. These were the guys of the Prohibition Bureau. They were led by Elliot Ness. That's the guy that uh, Quaid plays. And their job was basically to, you know, roust these, uh, to, to shut down breweries and roust figures of organized crime who were sort of keeping Chicago afloat, so to speak. The head guy there, Elliot Ness, the, the mob was catching on to the fact that he was so astute, he was doing a really great job, and one day he showed up to work and he found there was a check on his desk for $3,000. He ignored it, and then some guy walked by, some mobster type, and he said, there'll be another one of those on your desk next Monday too, and the Monday after that, and the Monday after that, if you just, you know, turn the other cheek. And Ness did not do that, fortunately, but yeah, it's, it's hard to fault the many, many Chicago cops who did accept it because yes there was a great depression that you know after the stock market crash in 1929 but there was also a great depression in 1920 or not a great depression but it was a depression in order to fuel our performance in world war one american industry like spiked all of its production it was going hard 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 for the two or three years that we were involved in like active warfare and then when abruptly war stopped no one had sort of eased 
had parachuted down the amount of materials that were being produced by so suddenly the industries were putting out fuck tons of war amounts of material and it was not being consumed it was not being sold so there was a serious I don't know if it was a depression or a recession. Shit got expensive and people didn't have a lot of money and so a lot of cops who, just like almost everyone else in America, fucking hated prohibition, thought the 18th Amendment was the stupidest shit in the world. They figured like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to enforce this law anyways, so I may as well take some blood money, you know, in order to fucking take care of my family. Maybe I'm gonna come to rue the day I said that into a microphone. So Al Capone was the original Scarface. That's uh, what they called him because when he was a teenager, he was a bouncer. He was doing someone a favor and he was working as a bouncer at their bar. And this woman walked by with a man and he said to her, this is the exact quote. He says, I think is the exact quote. He says, you got a great ass, sweetheart. And that's a compliment. The guy that that woman was with was her brother and the brother broke a beer bottle and slashed Capone's face, I think. He might have done it with a knife. Anyways, Capone gets that scar. He's very sensitive about it. People start calling him Scarface, and he really doesn't like that. He starts telling people to call him Snorky, which is just like a fucking 1920s slang for fella. People didn't call him Scarface to his face because they were afraid of him, but the newspapers always did because it was a nice gimmicky name. And then every now and then when he would do like a small press conference from home or from his office, um, there was, you know, a reporter would raise a hand and be like, hey, uh, Scarface, are you gonna help us build the bridge? And Capone would give them this very like patient sort of remanding look and he would say, do you address other people by their physical disabilities, by their physical differences? Like he sounded so level-headed. He sounded like, you know, he was the one being rational, but he was uh, the murderer. That's how he got the name Scarface. Also, if you live in Miami, you will know that there are many figures in this city who get the reputation of being the source material for Tony Montana from the 1981 movie Scarface. Uh, th that's not true. The, that person is not the source material for Scarface. The 1981 movie Scarface is a remake of a 1932 movie called Scarface, and that movie was based on a man named Scarface. Everybody recognized Capone as being kind of freakishly strong, but when you read accounts, I've read, I've read three full-length biographies of Capone, and then one book that was a, a, it was called Scarface versus the Untouchables, and it was a dual biography of Al Capone and Elliot Ness, who was the guy who quote-unquote brought him down. Which incidentally, the fucking movie The Untouchables is so wrong with like everyone's toting shotguns and there are all these like impressive shootouts and whatever. The only thing Elliot Ness ever shot was a ceiling. Whenever he raided a brewery, he would fire a shotgun into the ceiling. Like sometimes he would do that. Al Capone and Elliot Ness only saw each other once in court. But an interesting element of... Oh, but I, I was saying, when it comes to accounts of Capone, people who have really mired themselves in the material, they come out usually either leaning into the Robin Hood you know, image that he tried to sell of himself, or they go way in the opposite direction and they depict him as being stupid, like just incredibly stupid and gross, very juvenile. Like, it, there's a great depiction of Al Capone in the show Boardwalk Empire. But that's another thing, like, as much as I read about Capone's life, cannot remember who sabotaged whom, which family was in cahoots with which, I can never cement that. And in an attempt to cement that, I watched the entire, the all five seasons of Boardwalk Empire, thinking like, okay, well, it, Boardwalk Empire does stick pretty closely to the facts. After I watch it, I'll at least be able to place an actor's name or and face 
to like events that I've read about, but it fucking didn't work. It didn't help at all. It's a good show. I enjoyed it. He went to prison, I think, in 1932. I think he was sentenced to 11 years, and they let him out early because um, syphilis was eating his brain. And like he spent his final days basically a hermit at the house, um, a zombie, so totally disoriented. And his his family couldn't take him out to restaurants and stuff because he would fall into some sort of hallucination, and he would start talking about like, "Oh, you're dead. You're dead." He would start seeing ghosts of people he had killed. But over those last few years of his life, he was losing his mind to the to the to a very slow cognitive deterioration caused by syphilis, but people were mistaking his rambunctiousness, his unpredictability, his spontaneous violence, his compulsive gambling. They were mistaking it for his huge cocaine abuse. One of the things that is has been interesting and difficult is uh I, I like a compelling kind of villainous character, anti-hero character, where you can sort of get them to speak eloquently about their motivations, and um, they just become a, a nice vehicle for sort of exploring that kind of element of, of humanity, but Capone was not eloquent. He had a weird kind of venomous charisma, kind of like Trump, actually, where he's not eloquent, you wouldn't say he's well-spoken, but he knows how to talk. He somehow just cajoles people and gets them to do anything he wants them to do. And part of it was fear, obviously, because he fucking beat people to death with bats. Allegedly. I don't know, he's an interesting figure, kind of. Um, maybe I've just you sort of twisted him into a more interesting figure than he actually was. And I don't mean made him more interesting in my book, I mean just because I've been living with the specter of Al Capone and ruminating on his career and what he did. Uh, can you even call it a career? I'm like a career criminal. This is me trying to sort of come to terms with the fact that, like, you know, for six months I've been living with this idea of, oh man, I have to I have to really fucking teach myself Al Capone's entire life, and I think I've done it. And it's weird now to know that all that material is consumed, and uh, in a few weeks I'll be jumping into the second draft. Anyways, we're done here. Thanks for listening. I look forward to fucking d pelting facts about the 1920s to you again soon, because I certainly can't talk about this shit with anyone else in my life. Dude, that's another weird thing. I have never. I'm. I'm also kind of on the corner of my desk, working on a, a long essay about the experience of doing this much research. I have never done this much research for a creative project, mainly because I never feel like anything I'm writing is worth anyone's attention. I tend to like jump into a writing project and try to get it done as quickly as possible because I'm like, this is gonna fail. No one's gonna read it, and I'm gonna feel like shit if I spent a long time on it. But I think the fact that Cuba Fruit got an agent representation sort of emboldened me to jump into something way more challenging and uh yeah i'm excited to see where it goes i'm also shitlessly scared because if cube fruit doesn't sell and then my agent is like all right well that didn't sell what else do you have i'm gonna have to be like well, lucky you i have the sequel to the book that didn't sell um it is a standalone and again it does take place about a hundred years before the action of uh cuba fruit so i don't know we'll see how that develops i will keep you apprised but yeah doing all of that research and like you basically come to if you're doing historical research you come to live in that different era in for those three or six hours a day that you're working on it and you just can't talk about it with anyone because you're just going to bore the shit out of them anyways going on too long. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.